All right. So for the next five weeks, with a break in the middle for two very exciting collaborations with College Street, we are going to be thinking about how to live well. What does that even mean in times like these? How do we take a step back from our lives to get a sense of the patterns that we are inhabiting, perhaps even stuck in, so that we can move out of them and discern God's movement in our lives and in our community? To do so, we are going to be using Scott Stoner's book, Your Living Compass, where he divides our lives into four categories. Uh, the ultimate commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength and soul and mind. Soul, heart, mind, strength. Those are the four categories Stoner looks at. So this first week, we are going to be looking at what it means to live well in terms of our soul or spiritual health, what Scott believes uh, is the foundation for all else. Now in the section on the soul, Stoner addresses two key areas of our life, our spirituality itself, which he understands as the soil in which we plant the roots of our lives, and the concept of rest and play. At first, it might seem like an odd pairing, but it is, in fact, an essential one. And he begins with particular practices that one can use to plant oneself deeper in the sense of meaning of life. And then he moves on to the concept of Sabbath. Now, for those of you who are quite convinced you do not have time for a full Sabbath, he discusses Stephen Covey's description of two lumberjacks who cannot cut through their final tree because they have not sharpened their saws. After a productive day, they leave frustrated and discouraged. And so he writes, The phrase, may they rest in peace, is widely spoken when someone has just died. It is so common that we even recognize it just by the initials, R.I.P. It is offered as a prayer and a hope for the soul of the person who has just passed away. But what if we were to pray this prayer for those we love? as well as for ourselves when we are still very much alive. I believe that the number one warning sign that we need more rest and play in our lives is when we start taking ourselves too seriously. Our interactions with others and our work. Now, I am the first to acknowledge that there is a time to be serious in life. Life puts us in various serious situations. There is a difference, however, between being serious and taking ourselves too seriously. In my experience, most people do not need to be reminded to take themselves and their lives more seriously. My experience is quite the opposite. I see more, most people needing to help take themselves and their concerns a bit less seriously, letting go of their concerns and focusing their attention instead on gaining a helpful perspective, strengthening their faith that all will be taken care of in time. He concludes saying, I have seen this tendency in organizations as well, where the culture of a business or a congregation seems to bless being quite serious, especially in its leaders. In an organization with this ethos, a leader may not be considered a real leader unless she is feeling overwhelmed and tired. In other words, unless she is serious most of the time. At its worst, this kind of seriousness seems to be worn as a badge of honor serving as a validation of how hard the leader is working. You can detect this tendency in an organization by the lack of laughter and fun. Here ends the reading. Will you pray with me? God of all creativity, may you be in these words that I speak and all our meditations this day. 
that this time together may draw us closer to you, ourselves, and one another. Amen. When I was growing up, the town, the next town over was Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and it calls itself the city of five seasons, the standard four, and then the fifth season, which is time to enjoy the other four. We used to jokingly call it the city of five smells, based on the pungent smell of whichever cereal Quaker Oats was making that day. But I digress. The first lines on the city's website about it say, some may say that taking the time to appreciate everyday beauty extends life, almost like an extra season is added to every year. This fifth season affords us time to enjoy all other seasons and to enjoy life. What they don't say is the tagline was created in the 60s as part of an ad campaign to capitalize on the fact that the city's average commute time was shorter than other cities in the country. That fifth season turned out to be 20 minutes a day, all the time you need to actually enjoy living instead of just selling your soul to your commute. Now, I'm fairly certain that tells you everything you need to know about today's sermon topic, to be honest. The biblical idea of Sabbath, an entire day every week where one is not allowed to do any form of work, crunched into time you save on your commute. Now, in 2016, looking out at the grief around her, Trisha Hersey, a woman with a degree in public health and a Master's of Divinity, she founded what she calls the Nap Ministry. If you walk around any major city, at some point you are likely to run into one of her art installations. Giant canopy beds with gauzy sheets installed on park lawns, tents with yoga mats and pillows and soft music, rest stations in the middle of the city where you are invited to come and take a nap. Based in womanist or black women's liberation theology, Hersey recognizes that in systems where we are valued for what we produce or consume, rest is profound resistance. This is not part of the wellness industry, but in fact in opposition to it, because it is rooted in the daily lived experience of women of color and aimed at restoring the balance between people and the environment and nature and reconciling human life with the spiritual dimension. Rest, in her understanding and lived experience, is a spiritual practice, a racial justice issue, and a social justice issue. Whose bodies are allowed to rest? When? For how long? I mention Hersey's work because it would be easy to think that this sermon series, based on a book called Your Living Compass, Living Well, is rooted in a consumer-based wellness paradigm. Instead, based on the lifetime work of an Episcopal priest, Stoner is trying for something totally different. He is attempting to remind us that we are already whole, created as we are in the image of God. He is attempting to reorient us so that what we seek to do in our daily lives is return to that wholeness, that spiritual center, in order that we might be guided by God and our faith in all we do or say. This is individual discernment of God's movement in our lives, that from a place of wholeness we might be aimed at the collective goals of our faith, good news to the poor, release to the captives, rest to the tired. And it begins here in connection with God, in taking the time to rest, counterculturally, 
and not just in the 20 minutes we save on our commute by living in Burlington. When it comes to the rest and restoration of our souls, we are often our own worst enemies. We take things far too seriously. Things are done in a certain way or order as we always have done. We view prayer and worship as a chore. This is true in many congregations, and if that's true here, that is at least in large part my fault. But it is also true that our expectations are often not in line with our goals. We want to rest in peace while we are alive, but we are unwilling to take the time to make it happen. We want a closer relationship with God, but expect God to take the first, and maybe the second and third step. A few years ago, I was asked to serve on a task force for the new expressions of church in the Vermont Conference of the United Church of Christ. It was a small group, maybe five of us, as well as the conference minister, who were gathering periodically to discuss ways in which the conference can encourage new expressions of God's spirit outside the traditional walls and rituals of church. Now, all of us were ministering to churches in the conference that were bucking the tide of falling membership. We were serving congregations that were vital and growing in terms of numbers, but also in terms of depth. Now, I could argue with the term new expressions all day, and I might have probably in those meetings. I don't believe in new expressions. I believe in expressions that work, that connect us with God and one another, and many of those are not, in fact, new, but very, very old. But one of the things that I noticed as we went around the room is that of the five of us, three of us were under the age of 40, two of those were primarily with youth and young adults, and a fourth ministered a congregation aimed primarily at college students. The fifth was a member of a, uh, she was an interfaith organizer. And what struck me is perhaps it's not new expressions that we need so much as youthful expressions. People have asked me why it is that I like working with youth so much, and there are a lot of reasons, but first and foremost among them is that they have not lost their playfulness. When you play together, it greatly increases your sense of intimacy. They are more easily vulnerable with one another and with themselves, able to dive straight into the deep and philosophical end of the pool. Adults, on the other hand, myself included, we are often more rigid. We know what we think and what we believe and what is proper. We have been into the deep end already, and why don't I just tell you about it rather than going in for another swim? We know what we like and what we don't like and what we believe and cannot possibly believe and therefore have no need or time, really, for silly games. But to play, to play requires an ability to laugh with one another and to laugh at oneself, to laugh at who you have been and who you are and who you are becoming. Now, I'm not intending to say that all adults are one way and all children are another. I've had very serious confirmation classes. What I mean to say is simply that in order to find that inner peace, that relationship with God that we want and seek, why else would we be here? It helps to have a sense of humor. Writing in the Christian Century, Reverend Debbie Thomas recalls reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for the first time. Aslan, which is C.S. Lewis's famous representation of God, has been resurrected, and it is a moment of dire peril for the country. But instead of worrying, he decides to play tag with the children until they finally collapse in a happy laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. The first time I encountered this scene, she writes, was as an adult, reading the Narnia books to my own kids. And I cried 
The possibility that God might laugh, romp, and play with his children stopped me in my tracks. How could such a scandalous thing be true? The list of characteristics I associated with God, omniscience, holiness, transcendence, righteousness, did not include playfulness. It did not include an affinity for tag. Yet playfulness does have a place in our scriptures. We've just been trained, I think, not to see it. Wisdom is God's delight, not God's seriousness. And so Reverend Thomas asks, what if not playfulness characterizes God's instruction to Sarah and Abraham to name their son Isaac, meaning let him laugh? How can Jesus exhort his disciples to become like children if he doesn't value play? Why pull a coin from a fish instead of just giving one to the tax collectors? Playfulness, recreation, recreation, is at the heart of Sabbath and rest, and it is at the heart of our faith and wholeness. It is the only task or job scripture finds so important that it made it part of the Ten Commandments. The only one. So what does spiritual playfulness look like? Perhaps like deep attentiveness, a willingness to gaze, attend to detail, and enjoy rather than to use, abuse, or consume. It looks like collaboration and fairness, a mutual commitment to the pleasure of all involved. And it involves a steadfast and creative refusal to default to boredom or cynicism or ennui or contempt. A creative refusal to default to boredom or cynicism. In his work Orthodoxy, the 20th century author G.K. Chesterton writes, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and repeated. They always say, do it again. And the adult does it again and again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that God has the eternal appetite of infancy. So I would invite you, friends, to take the rest and play assessment at the back of Stoner's book. Ask yourselves how well you are playfully observing Sabbath. How much time are you committing to yourself each day to delight in creation, to play? Is it more than a 20-minute commute? When was the last time you exalted in monotony? As someone who read Days with Frog and Toad to my daughter no fewer than 58 times yesterday, <laughs> who's counting? <clears throat> I know what a challenge this can be. But I also know that at the heart of our very scriptures, we are promised that there is something in it not just for her, but for me. And it's probably Jesus. Thanks be to God.